Hello and welcome to the Hustle and Bustle podcast. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, the Yugambeh people, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. My name's Nicole Bennett, and I'm an urban and regional planner and I'm the host of this podcast. Each episode, I bring you conversations with city shapers and urban thinkers, leaders in the field of urban planning and city building. I'm located here on the beautiful Gold Coast in Australia. We're one of the host cities for the Brisbane 2032 Olympics and Paralympics. The next 10 years is being described as the golden decade for our city and our region. The conversations on this podcast help us understand the opportunities and challenges ahead. So let's take a minute from our busy hustle and bustle day and let's have a great conversation. And welcome to episode four of this season. So far, season two has seen conversations with an inspiring young planner, an expert in Indigenous planning, and an international architect on responding to climate change. And today, I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by an absolute planning superstar, Mr. Matt Collins. Matt is the Queensland and Northern Territory State Manager for the Planning Institute of Australia. Matt has significant experience in leadership, planning, policy and government. Prior to commencing with the Planning Institute, he was the General Manager of the Queensland Government City Transformation Task Force, where he led the state's strategic cities agenda, including in relation to city deals. He has also consulted for a range of major firms on planning, infrastructure and city making, and he's been a strategic senior advisor to the ministers in Queensland Government as well. He holds a Master of Urban and Regional Planning, as well as a degree in Journalism and Public Policy. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. How are you today? I'm great, Nicole, and it's great to be with you. And today is a bit of a rainy day on the Gold Coast. What's it like up where you are? You're in Brisbane? I'm in Brisbane today and it's pretty grey and overcast here as well. Yeah, we've seen a lot of rain here. So it's not the, the beautiful Gold Coast that it usually is. And, and, you know, I'm hoping that it's not going to affect too much of the audio quality, but I'm sure we can tidy all of that up. But welcome to the podcast. As I said, I'm so thrilled to have you. Uh, and today I really wanted to chat with you about your diverse experiences in planning, particularly your experiences with politics and planning. You know, politics can often get a bit of a, a, a bad rap. It's a bit of a dirty word with some people. I think you've really managed to navigate it quite well. And as planners, you know, I find we can get a little frustrated with politics and the way that, you know, it might influence outcomes or it might influence sort of communities. And, you know, rather than getting frustrated, I've seen, you know, some of the work that you've done, you've managed to really negotiate some great outcomes within that political sphere. So I'm keen to just start the the chat today by understanding your perspective on, on politics and how we as planners can navigate that environment in an ethical and positive way. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a really important question, Nicole, and and I think you did right that politics often does get a bad rap, and probably from the outset, I think it's it's important to say, having worked for several politicians uh, myself, it's it's certainly true. I think that that most politicians go into to doing that work to make a positive difference, and that's true of both sides of politics. So, I think that's an important opportunity because it's very much the same for planners. Most planners go into the business of planning to, to make a difference, to, to make their communities better. So there's already some commonalities as a starting point there. It's funny, I actually came to planning through politics first. Um, before I was a planner, I worked for a former deputy mayor of Brisbane uh, who was also responsible for 
uh, the planning department at the time. So that's where I first got exposed to planning and became really passionate about the potential of planning and the future of cities. Uh, but when I studied politics, which is what my first degree was in, as you mentioned, uh, you know, one of the things we really learned was that politics was about who gets what, when, where and how. That's kind of the classic definition of politics that you get taught. So if that's the defini definition of politics, who gets what, when, where and how, it's easy to see how so much of planning itself is inherently political. As planners, we're making big decisions in the public interest about those very issues, who's getting what, when, where and how, whether that's you know, strategic planning, whether it's DA, whether it's policy making. And so because of that, I'm a really big advocate that it's important for us as planners to understand how politics shapes what we do and how we can operate ethically, as you said, and effectively in that space. Because too often politics can be a hindrance to good planning outcomes. And as planners, I think it's part of our job to make sure that we're getting outcomes, not just great plans. Um, you know, you know, we need. We know that we need more housing diversity. We know that we need to put pedestrians and public and active transport first in transport planning. We know there's opportunities to reclaim streets to make more public and open space. What's stopping us? I mean, we know it's not always technical. We know it's not just about financing some of those great projects. It's often politics as well. Um, as planners, I think we often can fall back on our technical skills. It's what we're trained in. It's what we're great at. Uh, but is this enough if we want to see our plans become reality? Do we need to also see an important skill set for planners as being advocates for great planning as well? And I think we do. Um, and I think there's lots of ways we can do that. Um, this podcast, for example, is a great way of advocating for great planning and putting a spotlight on great planning. Uh, and I think that it's something as plain as we can do more of. Uh, but starting, I think, with the understanding that many of the things that motivate political decision makers are the same things that motivate planners, great outcomes for our communities is a really good place to start a conversation for change. Yeah, absolutely. Some great points there. It's, you know, so from from what you've said, would you say that politics provides that avenue to actually ensure that plans don't remain on the shelf. You know, we often sort of, you know, talk about, you know, doing a great planning study or, or a planning scheme or, or any kind of planning document. But, you know, some of these things can get shelved and they, they don't get put into practice, you know, either budget-wise or, or resourcing or, or, I guess, political will. So do you see politics as one of those key kind of mechanisers for making a plan happen? I, look, I think it's just the reality. Um, and that is because at the end of the day, it's very rare that planners alone are the final decision makers on a particular plan or a particular project um, that we might be seeking. Um, invariably, um, the way government works uh, is the decision maker will uh, in all likelihood either be uh, a politician or directly accountable to a politician for the decisions they make. And that's true as well if you're in the private sector as well, because if you're putting in a DA, you've got to deal with those realities too. Politics though, and this is small p politics, not party politics, really I think shapes the scope and space for uh, what might be possible and what might not be possible. And I think you can see that really starkly in the way that that that, that the political discourse has really shaped uh, 
the debate around climate change in this country for a very long time, and it's really uh, unfortunately been of a quality that's narrowed the field for what is might be considered possible, and it's really been, I think, to the detriment of really important uh, change that we need to make to, to deal with climate change. So I think that's just one example of the way that politics can can influence uh, and sh limit what we do. I think our job is to understand how we can not only produce great plans, but also create space for those plans to be delivered and implemented. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I think you'd agree with me that planning is really a social endeavour. You know, in episode one, when I was speaking with Nick Camels, you know, he made the point that planning is often seen as something that's spatial, but really it's about people, you know, and it's about, um, you know, ensuring that communities are, are improved through the planning process. So how do you think politics and planning influences community trust in the process? Yeah, look, I think that's a really important question and I think it's something that that uh, we're talking a lot about in the profession at the moment and in the Planning Institute in particular. Um, and it's, I, I think the reason we're doing that is because we're hearing a lot uh, that there's growing fatigue in some parts of the community about the pace and impacts of urban change and that's making planning and development harder. Uh, and that's a particularly acute issue, I think, in a state like Queensland, obviously, where we're coming from, which traditionally has had a high population growth to have to manage and accommodate. Uh, there's uh, there's a not-for-profit called Studio THI, the old Hornery Institute um, that some listeners may have heard of, that have been doing some really interesting work lately in what they're calling urban change readiness. Uh, and as part of that, they surveyed a bunch of residents late last year in Sydney, Melbourne, South East Queensland. And some of the results which they shared at a, a conference I was at recently is really interesting uh, because it gives us an evidence base, I think, for what we all suspect or, or anecdotally think, which is their research showed that, that, that population growth tends to make people feel more anxious than excited, that people can often be uh, polarised on urban change, that there's there's a big group who believes it benefits the community as a whole, but also a big group who thinks change, when it happens in their neighbourhood, only benefits private developers. Um, but despite this, what was really interesting, I think, in their research was that most people seem open to change, but they want help to understand it and they want to see tangible benefits. So I think that really gives us some pointers as planners about things we need to think about in our planning practice uh, so that we take the community on the journey with us as we as we make plans and deliver plans, um, because really we're on the front line so often of, of helping communities navigate those changes. And I suspect in the future that's probably going to be an increasingly important part of what planners do. Uh, and if we're going to do that job effectively, it's critical we have community trust. Now, one of the things that's interesting, I think, in a Queensland context is the role of performance-based planning too which at its best, without a doubt, is something that really encourages innovation to get the strategic outcomes that the plan set out. Um, but for the community, that can sometimes feel a bit scary, right? I mean, how often have you heard something like, why does the plan say 10 stories when the developer got approved for 12? Yeah. That would be entirely okay in a performance environment, as you know, um, but that uncertainty can give the community uh, a bit of anxiety. So I think there's kind of two challenges there. There's 
there's navigating urban change, uh, which is particularly acute in some of those communities facing big population growth, and we're seeing that a lot post-COVID uh, in southeast Queensland and in a whole lot of regional areas too. Um, but we also have a challenge of relatively low levels of planning literacy in the broader community. I mean, you don't really get taught planning in school. There's not a lot of understanding out in the community about some of the deeper questions that we often deal with as planners. I mean, most people know what a zone is, but not everyone will know what we mean when we use terms like the missing middle or even housing diversity. So how we as planners communicate is really critical too. Um, I think for planners too, one of the things that can be frustrating ourselves is is the limits of our control too. I mean, we get to control and shape some parts of the system, um, but there's a whole lot of other actors influencing the outcomes on the ground in really big ways. And I know having listened to you talk about projects you've worked on, that you've had some experiences of this with Envy on the Gold Coast, where the kind of finance uh, people, from what I understand, really struggled to get that project. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you start to throw in engineering requirements, finance requirements, servicing for things like waste, environmental constraints, a whole lot of other issues, and they really impact on what happens on a site. So there's only so many things planners can do, but we often get the blame for when anything doesn't work uh, in a planning or development outcome. Uh, I mean, cities are systems and and planners are often the people that have to bring people together to collaborate to make that system right. But we don't always get to control the outcomes much as we might like to. Yeah, absolutely. And that ties back to the politics as well, I think. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, okay. So you're saying that, you know, there's a number of issues or a number of kind of um, elements there that influence the community's trust in, in the system. I'm, I'm wondering what we can do and, and taking some of those ideas forward that you've mentioned. How can we as planners improve the community's trust? You know, I, I think, you know, there's at the moment in, in my reading of the situation, everyone's kind of looking at each other to, to do this community awareness and, and, and a community sort of um, education piece. You know, and sort of I can see the development industry looking at council, councils looking at state, state looking at development industry, and there's kind of this, you know, interesting dynamic because I don't know who, if anyone thinks who should own this this bit of of building the community's trust in the system. And in my mind, everyone's responsible, but obviously that takes kind of an integrated and holistic approach. But as individual planners and as the planning profession as a whole, regardless of where we sit in in planning, you know, regardless of who our employer is, how can we all help to improve the community's trust in the system? Uh, look, that's a great question, and it's actually really topical. I completely agree with you that this is a problem that doesn't really have an individual owner, and I think if we're going to tackle it effectively, it's something that needs to be done uh, right across the different people uh, and organisations that have interests in this space. Um, one of the reasons I said it's really topical is that we are actually working with the Queensland Government right now on what's called the Community Planning Education Project, which involves a bunch um, of those other players that you just mentioned. So there's groups like UDIA involved, LGAQ, the Council of Mayors, and uh, a range of others. And the point of that Community Planning Education Project uh, is to, to recognise that we do need to act together 
to try and uh, address some of those issues that we just talked about. How do we improve planning literacy and understanding? How do we explain urban change more effectively in a way that the community understands and appreciates? There's no quick, quick fix, and I'm not convinced more information alone will do it um, because people who have a good understanding of the planning system can still disagree about what kind of development should happen in their neighbourhood. Um, and so I think that also means as planners, we probably need to be prepared to look at our planning practice and processes to start to see what we can do to address some of those community pain points. Um, I guess a practical example of that is late last year, we released uh, uh, an advocacy document called Planning for Housing in Southeast Queensland, which was a report that was focused on how we get uh, more planning in more housing in southeast Queensland uh, of the kind that we need for the future. We highlighted four areas of action in that report and one of those four was focused on having deeper engagement to build community support for change. And we did that because we think that implementing great plans really needs community buy-in and there's more we can do to get there. Uh, we make four recommendations about how we might improve engagement uh, in that report. And, one, and what we say is the Queensland Government, for starters, should perhaps look at how they can have a broad and ongoing conversation about urban change and growth with all of the organisations and actors that have an interest in this space. And that's starting to happen. And I think in the next few months, uh, you'll start to see uh, the fruits of that collaboration through a bit of public work to boost planning understanding and explain the story of urban change better. Uh, we also said that perhaps we need to look at new engagement standards for planning and development. Um, some councils, for example, do an amazing job uh, at engaging their local communities, taking them on a journey of change and explaining what's going to happen and why things are happening. Um, and others uh, don't. And in part, that's because the statutory standards don't stipulate necessarily a whole lot of engagement. So are there more things we can do to lift engagement at the front end? We think there probably are. And one of the other practical ideas that we've put forward, which we're hoping the Queensland Government will take up with some local governments, is to explore an idea we call neighbourhood infrastructure strategies. Um, what that is about, it's not revolutionary at all, it's just about saying how do we demonstrate to the community a better integration between uh, land use planning and infrastructure planning. I think anybody who's dealt with development or change will have heard the complaint that that more people are coming in to this community, but we're not seeing the infrastructure investments we need. Um, and that doesn't surprise me because often in the Queensland planning system, at least, we go out to the public with proposed changes to planning schemes which might talk about increased density, it might talk about increased population, but they don't have always, uh, most of the time in fact, a corresponding infrastructure plan for that local area that says because of this change we're going to have additional rates revenue and infrastructure charges revenue and that means we can invest in these upgrades to improve the local community. It might mean a better park, it might mean more street trees, it might mean better footpaths, it might mean uh, school upgrades uh, if we can collaborate with the state on those kind of things as well. So taking the 
the good news to the community as well as the change news, I think, is is something that we think is is really worth exploring. And so we've kind of called that idea neighbourhood infrastructure strategies, not revolutionary at all, but we think it's part of building more trust uh, in the community so that they know the things that they're concerned about quite reasonably uh, are being taken into account in the plan making process. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. And I think, like you've mentioned, that neighbourhood infrastructure strategy needs to include the trunk infrastructure, you know, the big infrastructure, but also those non-trunk pieces, you know, the street trees and, you know, the streetscape improvements that are so necessary when you start to, you know, increase densities within within local communities. I think that's right. But one of, and, and I think most of it, most local government planners and developer planners would know that a lot of that information, not all of it, but a lot of that information is in the local government infrastructure plans, the LGIPs, but they're not particularly accessible to the public. They're not uh, presented in a way that the community can understand and they're not presented at the same time as change in the local community. So it's as much uh, a, a storytelling function as it is a planning function. And we've got to fuse both of those, I think, together to make sure that we are maximising community trust in what we do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a phrase that sticks in my head is what's in it for me? You know, these communities are bearing the brunt of change. You know, there is sort of, as you say, an acknowledgement that there is a benefit as a whole, you know, that growth is a good thing as a whole. But when it is in your backyard and is affecting your everyday life, you sort of say, well, why why should I be taking this when, you know, what's the benefits for me of having this growth in my neighbourhood? And I think those neighbourhood infrastructure strategies are a great way of starting to demonstrate the the benefits that those neighbourhoods get by sort of having that growth occur. That's right. And I mean, I, and while although we've been through a couple of years of uh, closed borders and much lower growth, I think most people appreciate that that can't ever be a permanent state of being, that we can't throw up the walls and stop growth. I think the choice we've got is do we plan for what's going to happen or do we not plan for it? And I think we know that in that choice, not planning for it's a terrible idea, uh, planning for it's a good idea. So let's do the best planning we can uh, and explain to the community really well um, these are the changes that are coming and here's how we've planned effectively to make sure that the quality of your community uh, is enhanced and not diminished when change is going to occur. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is interesting. This conversation's very southeast Queensland uh, focused, I guess, in in the sense that some of the work I've done with Arup in our regional communities of Queensland are, you know, they're in decline. You know, they're seeing, you know, there's there's sort of no visitors coming because of the closed border situation. They don't have people to pick their agricultural fruits and 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 sort of um, products that they can sell to the markets. And they're not sort of getting a lot of mining you know, people coming in because sort of FIFO has sort of um, been, a, been a struggle over the last couple of years. So these areas are, are looking for ways to attract more people and to bring growth back to their region. So, you know, they've got the reverse situation where they'll kind of do anything in order to attract, um, you know, that prosperity that growth brings. That's right. Uh, and, and COVID, I think, is really interesting there too, because whilst not all workers can work remotely, for a significant number of workers, COVID's really proved up that you can work remotely. And for the kind of communities you're talking about, that's a real opportunity because often they've got great amenity, they've got great affordability, 
um, often the impediment there was just they didn't have the great deep labour markets to attract uh, skilled workers, uh, highly skilled workers to their town or as many as they would like. Um, now there's at least one a cohort of workers who have a lot more flexibility about where they live and can still do the jobs that they've been doing. So a really interesting time, I think, in planning for the future of work. Absolutely. That's a whole other topic. <laughs> it is. It is. Okay, let's change tack slightly, um, and I'm really keen to discuss your role with the Planning Institute. I think you've mentioned that throughout um, the, our conversation today, but I, I just want to unpack a bit more the role that Planning Institute is playing to advance better planning, particularly in Queensland and, and Northern Territory that you're responsible for. So as the peak professional body for planning, what is PEER's priorities? I think you've already mentioned sort of the housing supply and, you know, the paper that was released at the end of last year. You've also mentioned, you know, um, climate change and, and sort of PEER's role in, in, in climate change. But I'm, I'm keen to, yeah, sort of unpack those a bit more and really understand PEER's priorities. Absolutely, and, and thanks for the question. It's uh, it's a great question, and I love talking about the work that, that PIA does for and for and with the planning profession. Um, we should we should stick a a, a link uh, in the show notes for people to join Planner. I know for, to join PIA, I know there's a lot of planners uh, who listen to your podcast, and if you're not a member, for starters, love to have you join PIA. But yes, we, if they're not a member, they can't listen anymore. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, but look. PEER has four jobs, really, that we focus on. Uh, first of all, we very much see our job as being about championing the profession to non-planners. Secondly, we think that we need to be a thought leader for the profession, thinking about what the future of the profession uh, looks like. Uh, we very much are about advocating and lobbying on behalf of our members for good planning. Uh, and we also educate and train professional planners. So. Uh, Champion, leadership, advocating and educating are really the four things that we tend to focus on. Um, we're a fairly modest organisation, but one of the things that I really love is that we do a lot. Uh, and the reason we can do a lot is we're very much driven by our members. Much of what we do is only possible because we've got so many volunteers uh, putting in the time to make amazing events, write policy and advocacy material, prepare our magazine, judge our awards, and so much more. So there's a lot that we do uh, for and with the profession. But to touch on a couple of kind of specific things, here in Queensland and nationally, policy advocacy, I think, has really started to become a really important focus for PIA over the last couple of years, and it's something that we're going to continue to invest in because we think it's really important to provide a voice for planners and a voice for good planning uh, as we face the future. So as you mentioned, in the past few months, we've published a report on um, housing for southeast Queensland. Not long before that, we also published uh, a major report about climate change and how we do, can deliver more climate conscious planning uh, in Queensland and also around Australia. And in fact, that's actually the first time PIA has undertaken a national campaign of advocacy around climate change because we think it's such a serious issue and because we believe it's really imperative that planning is part of the solution in an active way. So for us, convincing governments to do more in both of these areas is going to be a focus for us over the year ahead. 
as I mentioned, we also put on a lot of events and training for planners so that we make sure the profession is skilled for the future. I think in Queensland we did more than 120 events last year. Uh, we run a mentoring program uh, and we've got uh, a record number of members, which is super exciting. Um, but we're also thinking about what the future of training looks like for the profession uh, as well, because COVID has really changed how people want to participate in, in events, how people learn. So we're starting to think about that too. Probably the final thing I'd mention quickly too is as we look ahead, we've recently started some work on two really important issues that, that we see for the future of planning and for planners. Uh, first, we've, we've recently launched a, a plan tech project, which is about how technology is going to reshape the work planners do so that we're ready for that and that we're not just uh, looking at what's happening to planning, but we're actually helping shape it as planners because we've seen disruption happen in a whole lot of industries and we're really interested in harnessing technology in a constructive and effective way for planners. So plan tech is something that we're going to focus on a fair bit over the next little while. And the second project we've launched recently which is really important, is the establishment of what we call the, the Planning with Country Knowledge Circle. And so that's uh, an Indigenous-led uh, group of planners that is helping guide us through a whole of profession and whole of organisation approach to, to truth-telling, to reconciliation, to thinking about how as planners we can do more to integrate, I guess, Indigenous systems and, and cultural knowledge into, into the practice of planning. It's a really massive issue, that one. It's certainly not one that I uh, purport to have uh, a deep understanding of, but it is one that we have to understand and get our heads around uh, for the future of reconciliation. And and it's a it's going to be a really interesting journey, that one. Yeah, absolutely. And and I had Dr. Sharon Harwood on the podcast uh, a couple of episodes ago speaking about that and, and the point that really stuck in my mind was, you know, planning can be the ultimate act of reconciliation. Uh, we've just got to do it well, you know, we just have to work with those uh, Indigenous communities to uh, plan with them rather than for them. I think that's exactly so. right. Okay, well, that's great. I'm, I'm glad to, to hear everything that PEER is doing to advance better planning. Uh, and, and, you know, I think the, the Institute's in great hands with yourself and Shannon and the whole committee. Um, I know that, you know, the bits that I've seen come out have been really um, awesome. And I'm looking forward to the Women in Planning uh, International Women's Day recce uh, that's coming up too. So um, that's going to be a great event. Absolutely. Record attendance at that one, more than 400 this year, which is fantastic. Wow, that's awesome. Um, and could we just finish by just sort of wrapping those two issues together that we've chatted about in terms of the Planning Institute and, and the Communities Trust or, pol you know, and, and politics and how all that sort of wraps in it. Do you see Peer's role expanding at all to, to do more of that education outside of the profession? Uh, Sorry, is the short answer to that, I think, is yes. And the work that okay. we're doing with the Queensland government and other organisations at the moment is is going to be exactly that. So I think in the next little while you'll start to see some public-facing uh, materials and some public-facing social media and some public-facing tools to really try and have that conversation better 
with the community. Uh, it's uh, it's something that we can't do alone. Uh, as I said, we're, we're a modest organisation and we, we, we do a lot, uh, but it's, this is not a challenge we can tackle alone. Uh, it's also not a challenge we can solve uh, overnight. Uh, it takes, uh, I think, years of deep engagement to really build not just an understanding of planning in the community, but actually where we want to get to is that the community really value the role of planning too, because without good planning, uh, we don't get great communities, wonderful neighbourhoods, and that's our job at the end of the day. So we want to take the community uh, on the journey to really understand and value the work that planners do. It's really fundamental for the future. Awesome. That's a great spot to leave it, I think, Matt. Thank you so much for your time today. I've really appreciated having you on the podcast and, and picking your brain a little bit about um, your past and, and, and your, your you know, extensive knowledges around um, the community's trust in the planning system, which I think is, as you say, fundamental to our future as a profession and, and to our future of cities and communities and regions you know, across Australia and the world. Thanks so much, Nicole. Great to be on here. And thank you for tuning in to the Hustle and Bustle podcast this week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review so that others find out about this episode and we can keep making these episodes for you. You can follow the show on Instagram, hustle underscore bustle underscore podcast, and LinkedIn, search for Hustle and Bustle podcast and request to join the group. That's all from this episode. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you next time. Bye for now.